From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza. Israeli forces announced that they accidentally shot and killed three of the hostages being held by Hamas. There were protests last night in Tel Aviv. We have to make a deal. Only diplomacy will work. And we need to start with saving lives first. Then Ron Elvin and the Week in Politics say to Ukraine still being held up, remembering brave flyers from World War II lost in the Himalayas. And Ariel Lohon's novel, The Frozen River, brings a forgotten figure back to life. First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, December 16, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The Israeli military says it's learning lessons as it investigates its own mistaken killing of three Israeli hostages in Gaza yesterday. Today, an Israeli military official said a white flag was being waved and the hostages cried out in Hebrew. They were shot anyway in an area of intense combat. Israel says Hamas fighters wear civilian clothing to deceive. The U.S. meantime says it wants Israel to scale back intense fighting and focus on saving civilian lives. An additional border crossing between Israel and Gaza is set to open, which could allow more aid in for Palestinians, according to the White House. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports it would be the first direct entry of aid from Israel into Gaza since the war began in October. The Karim Shalom crossing is near the southern end of Gaza, close to the border between both Israel and Egypt. Israel's decision to open the crossing is a turnaround from its previous policy of not allowing any aid, such as food, water, fuel, and medicine, into Gaza. The Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza has so far been the only way to provide any aid to Palestinians. The White House says President Biden raised the issue of opening the crossing with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and they called the move a significant step. But officials have not specified when the crossing would open and how much more aid would be allowed through. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Iran has put to death a man accused of spying for foreign intelligence, including Israel. That's according to state TV. NPR's Peter Kenyon has this report. The executed man was not identified, nor were details released about the spying activities he was convicted of. Media reports said only that he was convicted of gathering classified information on behalf of foreign spy agencies. Iran and Israel have been at odds for years, with Israeli leaders vowing to ensure that Iran never acquires a nuclear weapon. Tehran has long denied any interest in nuclear weapons, but it has a history of enriching nuclear fuel close to weapons-grade purity. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks soared this week after the Fed signaled it might start cutting interest rates next year. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow finished the week at an all-time high. All the major stock indexes gained ground during the week. The S&P 500 rose 2.5 percent, the Nasdaq jumped more than 2.8 percent, and the Dow soared nearly 3 percent. The Federal Reserve held interest rates steady, as expected, but investors were pleasantly surprised when Fed policymakers signaled they expect to cut rates by an average of three-quarters of a percentage point next year and another full point in 2025. The central bank is hoping for a so-called soft landing as inflation continues to ease without a big jump in unemployment. The Labor Department said this past week that consumer prices in November were up 3.1 percent from a year ago. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Brookline School District has paid about a half a million dollars this year to settle late wage claims. Brookline News reports that 173 employees filed the claims because of a systemic payroll failure in the summer of 2022. That issue caused the district to miss some paychecks and underpay employees and others. The settlement will give the teachers triple the amount of their late paychecks from that summer. The remains of a Pittsfield airman killed in a helicopter crash near Japan are back home. Members of Air Force Staff Sergeant Jake Gallagher's family and state officials, including Governor Mara Healey, met his casket at an air reserve base in Chicopee. A hearse then carried the remains to a funeral home in Pittsfield. People lined the streets and waved American flags as it passed. His wake and funeral will be next week. The Boston Police Department is exchanging guns for gift cards today. People can anonymously turn in their firearms at several locations across the city and get a $100 Target gift card in return. The city says it's looking to top the 35 guns turned in last year. Boston Police Deputy Superintendent Therese Kosmiski says that the rate of gun violence is down in the city, but the department still wants to be proactive. Anything that we can do to prevent any kind of further violence or an uptick in violence, we're just very, very determined to get guns off the street and any kind of senseless violence acts with guns. People can learn more at bpdnews.com. An anonymous donor left a special gift inside one of Salvation Army's iconic red kettles. Someone dropped a a wedding and engagement ring into a kettle at a market basket in Waltham. Attached was a note that said they were being given in love for a second time. They're valued at $1,500. The money will be put toward helping people in need in the area this holiday season. Bruins beat the Islanders last night. Celtics also beat the Magic last night. Mostly sunny today. Highs in the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures will be in the upper 30s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us today. The Israeli military says that its forces accidentally killed three Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. Those hostages were part of more than 100 still being held there after the deadly October 7 Hamas attacks, which killed around 1,200 people, according to Israeli officials. And that is the humanitarian and situ- uh, humanitarian situation in Gaza continues to get worse. And Pierre's Kat Lonsdorf joins us from Tel Aviv. Kat, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. What do we even know about the hostages who were killed? Yeah, so this was a really big shock here. The Israeli military released a statement to the press at around 8 p.m. last night saying that three Israeli hostages had been, quote, mistakenly identified as a threat during combat and killed as a result. The statement said that the military began reviewing the incident immediately. You know, they said that it had only happened a few hours before, so not a whole lot was known yet. But they released the names of the three hostages. They were three young men in their 20s. And Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also released a statement calling it a, quote, un 
unbearable tragedy. And I should say, just a few minutes ago, we got a few more details in a press briefing with an Israeli military official who said that a preliminary preliminary report had been done on this incident, concluding that the soldiers involved did not follow Israel's rules of engagement and that the hostages had been dressed as civilians in civilian clothes, waving a white flag before they were shot. You know, is, Israel often says that Hamas wears civilian clothes to deceive the military. What's Israeli reaction been like? I mean, I think we're still waiting to see the bigger picture here a little bit. You know, it's the Sabbath here, meaning a lot of people aren't on their phones. Maybe they haven't seen the news yet or aren't publicly reacting yet. But here in Tel Aviv last night, there was a kind of spontaneous late night protest. Um, I went and watched as just more and more people joined until there were, you know, almost a thousand people, I would say, marching through the streets of Tel Aviv, yelling for others to wake up and come and join them. And when I was there, I met 37-year-old Adam Yakutieli. He's an artist here. He told me he was full of grief and pain. I think it, it even more reinforces kind of what many people around me, at least, have been uh, calling for, which is... A ceasefire. There's no military solution to this situation. Israel is bombing its way into a corner that it won't be able to get out of. I heard that from a few people I talked to there, that they wanted the fighting in Gaza to stop, that it had to end completely. And you know, others didn't go quite that far. 30-year-old Ella Vinokur said that a new hostage exchange deal, like the one we saw a few weeks ago, had to be the top priority. We have to make a deal. Only diplomacy will work. And we need to start with saving lives first. You know, this feels like an important moment here. There's been a lot of public support here for what Israel's doing. But, you know, we'll see if this changes that. And what about the situation in Gaza today? Well, there's been a, com a prolonged communications blackout in Gaza for almost two days now. So it's been really hard for us or aid groups to get any information from there. But from what we know, humanitarian conditions in Gaza are dire right now. Disease is spreading. People are living in overcrowded apartments with little access to medical aid or necessities. And, you know, the World Food Program just put out a report today or recently saying that half of the households there are facing severe hunger. You know, the death toll in Gaza is around 19,000, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health. And I should say also that rockets are launched toward Israel from both Gaza and Lebanon daily. Air raid sirens go off many times a day around the country here. You know, they're usually shot down by Israel's Iron Dome defense system. But this is all happening as U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan wrapped up a trip here, saying that this war could go on for months. And here's Kat Lonsdorf. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Reports of Israel's use of so-called dumb bombs or bombs that are unguided, less accurate, have again raised questions about that use of force in a war that began after Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th. And on Tuesday, President Biden said that though the U.S. and EU supported Israel, quote, they're starting to lose that support by indiscriminate bombing that takes place. Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The president went on to tell campaign donors that support for Israel uh, was eroding. Was this a jolt to the Israeli government? Yes, a plea and a warning to the Israeli government. Biden is saying, we support you, but we don't support every decision you make. Bibi Netanyahu knows he's at odds with the European Union and the United Nations and others, but it matters far more to his immediate lifeline to keep the United States on board. On the other hand, Netanyahu's avowed mission is destroying Hamas, not just punishing them, but destroying them. And he has warned this will take months, as Kat was just telling us. Uh, Biden is saying that's a problem. He's saying you can spend five years or 10 years, as the U.S. did in Iraq, 
or 20, as the U.S. did in Afghanistan. But you reach a point of diminishing returns, and then your original mission becomes something else entirely. The next day, White House Press Secretary John Kirby seemed to tamp down the president's words. We're not going to armchair quarterback this from this particular podium. Uh, uh, let me finish. We're not going to we're not going to characterize every airstrike. We're not going to speak for Israeli military operations. The president was reflecting uh, a concern that we have had for some time and will continue to have as this military operation proceeds about the need for reducing civilian harm and being as precise and careful and deliberate as possible. Is he trying to say we support you, but not necessarily all the time? You know, Kirby is the current master of this kind of careful discourse, but you can't dance around the question forever. The interests of the U.S. and Israel are diverging, or at least the interests of their current governments are diverging. And the president is especially careful in an election year? Absolutely he is, and necessarily so. He was talking to donors with perhaps a variety of viewpoints on this, but the the president needs to keep as much of his party as he can united behind him, and he knows how divisive this conflict has become among Democrats, not the initial response to Hamas in October, but the ongoing death and destruction. Now, Republicans may not be united on this either, but this is the burden of leadership. Biden's opponents in the GOP can sit back and say this wouldn't be happening on their watch. House Republicans voted this week to approve a resolution um, formalizing their impeachment probe of President Biden. Where does that leave things? It means 2024 will begin with another round of hearings about Hunter Biden, the president's son. And so far, those have proven little, if anything, about the president himself. But Speaker Mike Johnson would probably rather move on himself, but he has a contingent within his party, urged on by the former president himself, that simply insists on impeaching Biden and doing it as Trump's various trials are set to begin. And speaking of Trump's legal situation, on Friday, a federal jury ordered Trump's attorney, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, to pay $148 million to the mother and daughter he falsely accused of voter fraud in 2020. Uh, That accusation exposed those women to death threats and other consequences, and the number is so large as to be kind of a two-edged sword. It highlights the seriousness of the offense, but it also may bolster his arguments on appeal, and he said Friday it underscores the absurdity of the entire proceeding, quote-unquote. President Zelensky uh, came to Capitol Hill, asked the U.S. Congress to continue to help Ukraine. He went home empty-handed. Why? Here again, there is a contingent uh, within the Republican majority that uh, is over Ukraine and ready to stop the aid the U.S. has been sending there. As far as the House is concerned, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson hasn't been able to resolve that. There's bipartisan support for Ukraine in the Senate, but that country's fate is being held hostage there to the debate over immigration policy. NPR's Ron Elvin, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Mallort is a digestive, distilled from the wormwood plant, the taste of pencil shavings, old battery rust, citrus zest, and earwax. It's a version of Swedish bitters introduced to Chicagoans in the 1920s by Carl Jepson, a Swedish immigrant. He convinced officials of the Prohibition era that his 70-proof liquor tasted so odiously medicinal. It was obviously a treatment for stomach worms, not an alcoholic drink that anyone would quaff for sinful purposes. I've had Malort two or three times, always on a dare. I have no stomach worms. I guess it works. 
Bartenders often keep mallort on a back shelf to treat inebriated blowhards to a drink on the house after they've led the bar in singing the SpongeBob SquarePants theme seven or eight times. You may wonder, why is a spirit that tastes like cigar ash, singed eyebrows, and liquid plumber still brewed? It's a tradition, darn it, so Chicagoans can tell visiting New Yorkers, you think you're tough? Take a swig of this, Gothamite! This year, the C.H. Distillery, which now brews Mallort, produced a candy cane-infused version, festive as a mouthful of Christmas lighter fluid. The people who run the Nisei Lounge, a sticky-floored bar which has sat just south of Wrigley Field for 67 years, felt the distillery's candy cane Mallort amounts to rut-gut plagiarism. Val Capone, the Nisei Lounge Director of Infusions, has soused candy canes into Mallort for holidays since 2016. Alongside kosher dill pickle Mallort for Hanukkah. They co-opted our idea, Val Capone told us. Candy cane Mallort was our baby. The bar tweeted at the distillery on X, quit stealing our mixology ideas without attribution. The CH distillery posted in reply, in our rush to do good, we missed acknowledging those who came before us in the quest to make Mallort worse. The distillery says their bottled candy cane Mallort raises money for several charities. The Nisei Lounge says their candy cane and dill pickle Mallort at six bucks a shot raise funds for the Chicago Food Depository. We're a bunch of goofballs here, says Val Capone, but a dollar from every shot of Mallort goes to charity. I just want my city, she said, to have a good time and take care of people. I'll raise a glass of Mallard to that and put it back down and pour a nice Sauvignon Blanc. Just coffee now. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown, 44 degrees in Boston at 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll look at a former NASA engineer's war on thieves breaking into cars in San Francisco. His weapon of choice, high-tech stinky glitter bombs. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal, babson.edu slash gradprograms. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Amy Held with these headlines on Capitol Hill. Talks are expected to go on this weekend for a deal linking U.S.-Mexico border policy to billions in aid for Ukraine and Israel. Democrats say the aid is needed now. The Senate is expected to reconvene next week while the House is already in recess. Ahead of winter, thousands of migrant families in New York City's emergency shelter system are being told to clear out with no guarantee of a bed. The city says its shelter system is being overwhelmed by asylum seekers. 
Kuwait's ruling emir, Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Sabah, died today, according to state television. He was 86. His 83-year-old half-brother is expected to take over in the oil-rich Gulf nation. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The repercussions of a confrontation earlier this year between police in San Antonio and a woman suffering mental health issues are still playing out. Melissa Perez was shot to death by officers there. And her death has prompted calls for reform, as well as a federal civil rights lawsuit from the family. And this week, three now former San Antonio police officers were indicted. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav joins us now. Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And what was this confrontation that led to the death of Melissa Perez? Yeah, Perez was having a schizophrenic episode early in the morning on June 23rd. She was cutting the wires on exterior fire alarms at her apartment complex when the police arrived. So when they did, she fled. She barricaded herself in her apartment. They chased her. And when they tried to get into her apartment, she started throwing things across the room. A glass candlestick finally hit one of the officers. And then Nathaniel Villalobos, Elazar Alejandro, and Sergeant Alfred Flores opened fire. And bullets from Alejandro and Flores struck and killed her. The men were quickly uh, terminated by the department who said that they violated policy and protocol and, and videos do show that they they never really attempted to de-escalate the situation, that they continued to pursue the woman who was clearly in crisis and uh, on Thursday a grand jury indicted the three men. And Villalobos faces an aggravated assault charge while Flores and Alejandro both face murder one charges. And Villalobos says he's innocent and he'll fight the, the charge. The others did not respond. Paul, how unusual is it to have officers or former officers now indicted on charges like this? It's it's very unusual. Police prosecutions are, are highly contentious and political and, and nationwide. You don't see it very often. Researchers at Bowling Green State University found under 2% of on-duty officers who shoot and kill someone are charged with murder or manslaughter. And this district attorney has secured three other indictments for cops in the last two years for shootings and and one of those, he immediately dropped, saying just didn't think he could win. What's been the reaction to the indictments? It's It's been mixed because, you know, the family and mental health advocates and police reform advocates, they're grateful that they, they're being held accountable. But they say the city's backsliding on efforts to prevent a future tragedy. And Doug Beach with uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness says... The city's misusing specialized police uh, mental health units designed to deal with the city's 30,000 crisis calls each year. Instead, he says the city's using these units as backup and trainers for unrelated issues. And uh, uniformed patrolmen continue to respond. Here's, here's Beach. Melissa Perez paid for this lack of protocol 
uh, with her life. And it's also ruined the lives of uh, the police officers that were involved, who should not have been sent to the scene uh, to handle this type of call. In the meantime, the, the DA expects to go to trial uh, the second half of next year. Paul Flav is the accountability reporter for Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Paul, thanks so much. Thank you. Consumer Reports has been evaluating, evaluating new cars since 1936, and millions of people subscribed to their reviews. Now, as the auto industry undertakes a shift toward electric vehicles, the product testers have to shift gears, too. But B.J. Luderman still writes our theme music. And here's Camila Dominowski takes us for a visit. The Consumer Reports garage is spotless. The floors gleam. In fact, this is the sound of an electric BMW squeaking its way across that pristine floor. Past a Mercedes, a Ford, a Volvo, a Toyota Prius, Consumer Reports spends millions every year to buy these cars. I buy them. Joe over there, who's walking by, he buys them too. I mean, we all kind of share that responsibility. Alex Nizek is the manager of automotive testing and insights. Staff go undercover to buy the cars to make sure they don't get special treatment. And then they test them out on ordinary city streets and at this test facility in rural Connecticut on the site of an old racetrack. Nizek takes me for a spin. Go faster than 103. In a Nissan Z sports car, because why not? You only live once. My headphones just flew off. <laughs> I'll bring it down enough. <laughs> we speed past parts of the track where they test brakes, acceleration, handling. So just brace yourself. Now this zippy Nissan Z, it's very much gasoline powered. But more and more, Consumer Reports is testing cars that sound more like this. That is, they're almost silent. That's a Rivian electric pickup tearing through those same turns just as fast. The Consumer Reports testers are digging firsthand into all the questions anyone would have before buying an EV. Back at the garage, Nizek walks past a row of chargers. So we're able to charge two cars off of each one of these uh, pedestals here. So enough chargers for more than a dozen cars right here. Oh yeah, and they're full. <laughs> they are full, so we are adding more. And adding chargers is not the only change. Consumer Reports has revamped how it tests and rates electric vehicles. We really were testing EVs in a very similar way to regular cars, which is fine, but ultimately we were leaving a lot of things on the table, right? There's a lot of unique aspects of EVs that by doing that, we weren't necessarily capturing. Things like how well does the car direct you to the nearest charger? How easy is it to schedule charging? And then, of course, there's range. How far does it actually go? To test that, Nizek takes an EV out on the highway. Yeah, then I get the car up to speed and set the cruise control at 70 miles per hour. And then I drive a really long time. <laughs> I mean, on the lucid air, I was driving for hours and hours and hours. Because there's only one way to really test range. Basically, we drive that car from full all the way to empty. I mean, tow the car back to the track empty. Some cars over-delivered on their EPA-estimated range. Others fell short. Of course, some things are exactly the same for electric vehicles and gas-powered ones. Like, people care just as much about reliability. And on that front, EVs? 
they're not very reliable compared to normal um, combustion engine vehicles. Jake Fisher runs Consumer Reports' auto testing program. He says their big annual survey of owners found electric vehicles have 79% more problems. Fisher describes those reliability problems as growing pains. He says, imagine if the auto industry had been making electric cars for a century and then suddenly decided to start building gas-powered ones. I will guarantee you that it will be riddled with problems because all that technology is new. The same is going on with electric vehicles. It's going to get worked out. Fisher says long term he expects EVs to be more reliable because they have fewer moving parts. And he sees a lot to love in the EVs on the market today. They're unbelievably fast. They're unbelievably quiet. They're just effortless in terms of how they drive. Effortless handling. But making them reliably? And all the other things that need to happen to pull off this rapid turn toward electric vehicles? That's taking a whole lot of effort. Camila Dominowski, NPR News. On Sunday, Chile makes a second attempt to cast a ballot either in favor or against a new constitutional proposal. That proposal would replace the text designed and ratified during General Augusto Pinochet's bloody dictatorship. If this proposal is as roundly rejected as the last, this could be Chile's last chance at constitutional reform in a while, as John Bartlett reports. Chile finds itself at a constitutional crossroads. On the eve of a second plebiscite, the Coordinadora Feminista 8M, a feminist group in Santiago, are out campaigning against the new constitutional draft. They say it threatens women's rights. A first attempt to pass a more progressive proposal, which included a host of rights and guarantees, was decisively shot down in September last year, when 62% of voters opted against it. Most polls suggest that this proposal will be rejected too. The desire to replace the constitution surged from mass anti-inequality protests which shook Chile to the core in 2019. Politicians quickly signed an agreement to work towards replacing the 1980 Pinochet-era constitution, which many protesters blamed for the gulf between social and economic classes. Chile's leftist president, Gabriel Boric, backed the first progressive attempt at reform, but has not been drawn into commenting on this latest draft. I've come to Plaza de la Constitución, or Constitution Square, here in the centre of Chile's capital, Santiago, a wide open space out the back of La Moneda, the presidential palace. People are sheltering from the heat in what little shade there is around the fringes of the square and in the centre, there's a tiny hut where people are handing out free copies of the text for this new proposed constitution. 24-year-old librarian Socaire Sanchez says she is voting against the proposal because it is poorly designed once again and doesn't offer a future for the country. Luis Silva sat in the Constitutional Council as a member of the far-right Republican Party. He says that the proposal is balanced between four axes, women and men, civil society and experts, left and right, and tradition and innovation. However, others are warning that the proposal is ultra-conservative and does not represent Chilean society as a whole. There are fears that it does not go far enough to protect women the environment or social welfare, and it contains some rhetoric more familiar to, and often borrowed from, US conservatives, such as freedom to homeschool, an issue without precedent or widespread support in Chile. 
Across town, I met with Antonia Rivas, who is now leading the Against campaign. She told me, this is a proposal that, in the best of cases, establishes what we already have in our current legislation, and in most cases, means a step backwards. But back in Constitution Square, there are many who say they are just keen to see the issue put to bed. My whole family is going to vote in favour of this constitution, one woman tells us as she rushes through the square to work. Reluctant to share her name, she says she simply wants the country to move beyond the constitutional question. And she's not alone. Exhaustion with the process and a desire to move on from this constitutional saga may ultimately decide Chile's fate on Sunday. Politicians may then have to find a new way to satisfy people's demands. For NPR News, I'm John Bartlett in Santiago, Chile. When the car of Mark Rober got broken into in San Francisco, he was mad. I'm missing a window. Not cool, San Francisco. Not cool. And vowed retribution. The inventor, YouTuber, and former NASA engineer and his team rigged a high-tech glitter fart bomb. Rober has resorted to glitter bombs before. He rigged some fake packages with cameras and glitter bombs to get revenge on parcel thieves, but... Did he step it up this time? Rober and his friend set up a decoy car with cameras and placed backpacks, suitcases, outfitted with cameras, tracking devices, and pressurized canisters loaded with biodegradable glitter and a powerfully stinky spray that deployed shortly after the bags were stolen. I smell it now. Me too. I'm smelling. I clean whatever though. Did you catch that? One of the thieves took the rap for the stink once the gassy glitter bombs went off. Thieves ditched the bags. But sometimes they took the laptop from inside the bag, tracker and all, which gave Mark Rober a lot of data. He wanted to know who's behind the growing number of the car break-ins in San Francisco and where all the stolen goods wind up. He learned that most of the break-ins weren't carried out by armed, organized gangs, but individuals, often on foot or bike. Thieves who had their own cars often had stolen plates, or none at all. And much of what gets stolen was sold for quick cash in street markets. So, if you like the look of a second-hand laptop in San Francisco, but it's stinky, consider the source. For more thoughts, musings, reflections, even occasional pet photos, you can subscribe to my new weekly newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. I hope to brighten your inbox and uh, let you know what's coming up on our show. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Comprehensive sex education can be a matter of faith. Some churches are stepping up to teach sex education in states where it is not a required subject in public schools. Jillian Taylor with State Impact Oklahoma takes us to Oklahoma City. All right, does anyone remember what we talked about last week? Nope. Oh, come on. I know someone does. 
Haywin Mackenzie Scoggins is trying to coax a group of 7th through 9th graders to recall what they've learned in their sex ed class at All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa. She says she's starting conversations that public schools here won't. I had a terrible education, and then I had kids, and I'm like, I don't want to do that, but I don't know what to do. And then I started <laughs> Oklahoma is one of 10 states that only mandates AIDS prevention instruction in schools. That leaves the rest up to school districts, where levels of sex education vary. At least five churches in Oklahoma have stepped up to fill the gap. All Souls uses Our Whole Lives, or OWL, which is a national curriculum that can be used in secular and church settings. It provides age-appropriate lessons on topics like relationships, gender identity, sexual orientation, and health. All Souls parents attend a meeting before the course to find out what their kids will learn. Shannon Boston is a director of religious education at All Souls. She says the class centers around the church's values. To dwell together in peace, to be peaceful, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. That's our basic covenant. One student who benefited from the sex ed classes at All Souls is Margot Starr. She grew up in the church. She became a leader among her peers at her public school because she has had sex education. No one else knew the reproductive organs or like the technical terms of any of these things. Like my friends would ask me questions, and especially like when we got into high school. Only 25 states mandate sex ed in public schools. Fewer states require teaching information on contraceptive methods and even fewer on consent and sexual orientation. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, where Kimya Furazan keeps track of state policies on sex education. She says it's a patchwork across the country that deprives many of the knowledge they need to make informed decisions about sex. It's really vital that young people get the accurate information that they deserve. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Comprehensive sex ed is linked to reduced rates of teen pregnancy, sexual activity, and risky behaviors. Forazan says these rates are higher in states where an abstinence-only view of sex is emphasized, like in Oklahoma. That's what Jenny Briggs is seeing. She works with a group called Amplify Youth Collective in Tulsa. It advocates for access to sex ed in Oklahoma, which currently has one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the U.S., according to federal data. Briggs says it also has high rates of sexually transmitted infections. We know that Oklahoma is experiencing an STI crisis, and we see kind of a link there between the questions or the misconceptions young people have. While it's hard to track what individual schools in Oklahoma are teaching about sex ed, some young people find the church to be a reliable place to get the information they need. For NPR News, I'm Jillian Taylor in Oklahoma City. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Today marks the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The protest in which colonists threw British tea into the Boston Harbor is widely seen as the first step toward the American Revolution three years later. Several events across the city will mark the occasion, ending with a reenactment of the destruction of the tea at Boston Harbor.
Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is celebrating a group of new homeowners today. The city's homeowner reception will honor the 232 Boston residents her office helped buy homes this year. The party kicks off at the UMass Club at 10 o'clock this morning. The Bruins beat the Islanders last night on Long Island, 5-4 the final score in that game. Charlie Coyle and Dave Pasternak each got a shootout goal for the victory. The Celtics remain undefeated at home as they beat the Magic last night, 128-111. It'll be mostly sunny today, highs in the upper 40s, mostly cloudy tonight, temperatures in the upper 30s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. And we need a vacation with over 4,000 vacation rentals on the Cape and Islands, from large to small, luxurious to modest, for over 25 years. More at weneedavacation.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. American pilots in World War II called it the hump, the perilous route they flew from India over the Himalayas and into China to bring war supplies to Chinese forces battling the Japanese. The Allies prevailed, but some 600 U.S. planes are estimated to have crashed in that remote region killing more than 1,500 pilots and passengers. Now a new museum in India is displaying some of the artifacts from the wreckages that have been discovered over the years, including oxygen tanks, machine guns, and the bracelet of a missing airman. Professor William Belcher, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, participated in several expeditions to crash sites, and he joins us now. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Help us remember how vital was this military campaign during World War II? Well, I think war effort is always based on getting supplies from your supply depot to the troops that need it. And so this was extremely vital for the Chinese operations against the Japanese empire during World War II. And so without this airlift and this support for uh, military equipment and materiel, the war effort could have been very different for Asia. Which is to say Japanese forces could have prevailed. Correct. I was about to ask you why was this route so dangerous, but then, of course, it's over the Himalayas. (laughs) Of course it's dangerous. What was it like to fly that in the 1940s? Well, the storms are often unpredictable. Sometimes the aircraft are newer aircraft, and sometimes they don't handle as well as the designs 
that were coming out. And so there's a lot of accounts of the pilot and the co-pilot and the crew just dealing with the eccentricities of the design of the aircraft. And then also you're flying in excess of tens of thousands of feet, which is something that was relatively new. I mean, I think that we forget with our modern air travel where we get the notation that we're flying at 33,000 feet so that we can now turn on our, all of our devices. I think that we forget uh, that these aircraft were not pressurized. Some of the aircraft uh, that I've excavated were some of the first pressurized cabins. So there's that aspect. And there's just the aspect that we just didn't know the elevations of some of these mountains. And so a lot of the aircraft crashed right into the side of a mountain because of the maps and uh, the information that they had was uh, incorrect. How did you and other teams get to crash sites? They must have been very hard to get to. It's called boots on the ground. We do a lot of interviews with local villagers based on the historical records that we have, which were pretty slim because sometimes in the aircraft, it's like from point A to point B, somewhere in there, it, it disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so we just go out and start interviewing local hunters and they usually have ideas about where aircraft went down or they've seen something. And so I'd say much of what we find is through local intervention. And so this is why the museum that has opened up with Oaken Taiyang as the, the director is so important because Oaken owns a outfitting company. And so he knows this area extremely well. And he's also from some of the areas that we we're looking for with some of these aircraft. What are some of the things you've found over the years that have particularly stayed with you? It's the little things. It's like when you find a coin that you know is in the pocket of one of the individuals uh, mm -hmm. that is missing or something that they touched or worked with. And it's you know, not just the wreckage that we find, because we find a massive amount of wreckage, engines and things like that. And so we find much of the plane is still there, in, particularly in the very remote areas. But it's the little things that is a tangible thing that you can hold and touch and it connects you with that crew member. You, you talk about tangible things. That's coins in the pocket. I don't know, keys, handkerchiefs, pictures? Keys handkerchiefs. Occasionally we'll find photographs. There's ID bracelets, the identification tags or dog tags. We found a pistol once um, and we know that that was a sidearm of one of the officers. To me, it's the mundane everyday things that you find. And so you would find keys to their storage lockers um, at their base when they're probably based out of India. And it's just amazing that, you know, you get that. And it's just such a personal thing. That's the kind of stuff I have in my pocket right now. Why is this important, Professor Belcher? You must have heard people who say, oh, leave them alone. They do, but um, on one level, it's a promise that the military and the U.S. government has made to these service members that no matter what happens, we will recover your remains and return you to your family for burial. But for me, on another level, it's dealing with promises and expectations I think that we make to each other from one sibling to another to our spouses to our children and our children make these promises to our parents that we're going to do everything we can to make sure that you're home I think when we think about it in a contemporary living sense it's like keeping everybody safe but that continues on after death where we want to bring people home Professor William Belcher from the University of Nebraska, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for the opportunity. The U.S. Library of Congress announced it will preserve 
two classic holiday films for posterity. This is a thing called a present. The whole thing starts. The Nightmare the Before Christmas is among the movies inducted into this year's National Film Registry, and Pierre's Netta Ulibi has more. Every year, the Librarian of Congress picks 25 great movies to add to the registry. Among them, the Tim Burton animated film from 1993. Making Christmas. Making Christmas. The registry was started in 1988. The movies included, now nearly 900, are meant to represent the breadth and depth of American film heritage. Some are important, but rather obscure. Others are, well, home alone. Heads up! Home Alone, billed as a family movie without the family, came out in time for the holidays in 1990. Since then, it's made nearly half a billion dollars. Other blockbusters in the registry this year include Terminator 2 Judgment Day and a Disney film from 1955. Open up your eyes. Open my eyes? To what a dog's life can really be. Lady and the Tramp is about two dogs in love. Look, there's a great big hunk of world down there with no fence around it. But two dogs can find adventure and excitement. But the National Film Registry this year also includes movies about justice and reform. A 1974 documentary called We're Alive recorded conversations between inmates at what was once the country's largest women's prison. You know, we're giving them DAs the publicity, we're giving the police and busters publicity, and we're giving the judges that send us here publicity. We're letting the big crooks run for office of governor. We're letting the big crooks run run for for president. president. There's also a collection of home movies shot over decades by a Filipino-American family. It documents their California community during a period of significant immigration. It's one of several films in the registry this year reflecting Asian-American experiences. Another is director Ang Lee's first big movie, The Wedding Banquet. Also being preserved for posterity, a 1975 movie called Cruisin' J-Town. It's about jazz musicians in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo neighborhood. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. Everybody has opinions on holiday songs, and tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Ayesha, it's a Christmas music throwdown. Feliz Navidad. And Pierre Scott Detro referees as Aisha and I go mistletoe to mistletoe and what we like, what we love, and what we hope to. Do you hear what I hear? Said the night wind to the little land. You can listen on your radio, your phone, or your smart speaker. A new novel opens with a body floating in a New England river in the winter of 1789. The body floats downstream, but it is late November and the Kennebec River is starting to freeze. Large chunks of ice swirling and tumbling through the water, collecting in mounds while clear, cold fingers of ice stretch out from either bank, reaching into the current, grabbing hold of all that passes by. Already weighted down by soaked clothing and heavy leather boots, the dead man bobs in the ebbing current, unseeing eyes staring at the waning crescent moon. That's Ariel Lawhon, the best-selling author of historical fiction, reading from her latest book, The Frozen River. She joins us now on the road from her book tour. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You introduce us to a genuine heroine in this novel, Martha Ballard, of Hollowell, Maine, 
who really existed. She is a midwife. Uh, why is a midwife called into the case? In the late 1700s, midwives did not just deliver babies. They were more of a broad-spectrum medical professional. They tended minor wounds. They performed minor surgeries and often performed autopsies. They were called in to examine the dead and determine cause of death if possible. So in this story, we open with this dead body, and shortly after, Martha Ballard is called to examine the body and see if she can determine the cause of death. How did you find out about Martha Ballard? On accident, I was pregnant with my fourth son, and I was in my doctor's office, and it is quite possible that if my doctor had been on time that day, this novel would have never been written. But he had gotten stuck at the hospital with a tricky delivery, and therefore I had gotten stranded, and I read the book I'd brought with me, and I read all of the magazines in the office, and all that was left was a pile of scary pamphlets in the corner, and hidden under that was a small devotional. So I opened it to that day's date. It was August 8th, 2008. And I read the story of a woman named Martha Ballard who had delivered over a thousand babies in her career and never lost a mother. And I remember wow. sitting there thinking, my own doctor can't boast a record like that. And I thought it would make a brilliant novel. So I ripped the page out and I took it home and I held on to it for 15 years. Midwives learn a lot of secrets, don't they? Yes, they do. The other astonishing thing about Martha Ballard is that she kept a diary for 30 years at a time when most women could not read or write. And in that diary is recorded all of the births, all of the deaths, the murders, the scandals that happened in her small town. Because she was tending people behind closed doors, she learned their secrets. I made a note of one of your very good lines. Uh, Martha Ballard writes, or you write for Martha Ballard in her voice at one point, that uh, women are too busy to keep diaries. They're the luxury of men with libraries, butlers, and wives. Mothers find a different way to get their work done. Did you feel a particular obligation to tell a story like this from this vantage point? I did. I find that so often the heroines in novels, they are young and they are in their 20s or 30s and they are at the beginning of their lives. But what we miss and what is not often portrayed on the page is a mature woman as the heroine. We don't get to see that often. And when this novel opens, Martha is 54 years old. She's been married for 35 years and she's had nine children, only six of whom are still living. This is a woman who has seen a lot of life. And I really enjoyed writing a different type of heroine, a woman who is decades into a busy, thriving family life. And I think we should see that more on the page. We should see mature women get to be the heroes. We should see mature women get to solve the murders. And being in midlife myself, I found that I'm longing to read that. I want to see more of that personally. So in this case, I wrote it. The story unfolds the year the U.S. Constitution comes into effect, and the justice system is different than what we see on Law & Order, isn't it? Yes. I, I always tell people, you have to throw out everything you think you know about due process when you read this book. The Constitution had barely been written. The Bill of Rights had not yet been ratified. 
During the six months that this novel takes place, the Supreme Court sat for the very first time. The justice system was sparse. It barely existed. The rules were very loose, and Martha was operating within that very loose, strange system, trying to find justice in the best way that she could. As a novelist, how do you steer your responsibility to history with a real-life figure like Martha and the creative license that you take as a novelist to tell a compelling story? It's a challenge. I have always tried to stick very closely to the facts of history, and then I would find my story in the cracks, the conversations that are not recorded, the betrayals we don't know about. In this case, and really for the first time, I took a few more liberties for the sake of the story itself. Everything was in service to the overall story. And then obviously in the author's note, I come clean about the changes that I made and why. Anything about this time period that surprised you? You know, we have an inexact idea set in our minds of, I don't know, powdered wigs and tricorn hats and breeches and that sort of thing. I think we think history is distant. It's this thing in the past. Whereas once you start reading and investigating, you realize people never change. For instance, something that actually surprised me and probably shouldn't is that four in 10 first pregnancies in Martha's day were conceived out of wedlock. 40%, only one to 2% or two of those Mm -hmm. babies were born out of wedlock. So you had lots of shotgun weddings and you had Lots of, shall we say, nine-pound premature babies. Like, oh, he's two months early, but look, he's huge. We think of the Puritans as very straight-laced and pure. Turns out, not so much. People are people, and that has never changed throughout human history. And that's the fun part of historical fiction for me, is you can dig into the past and you go, oh, nothing changes. And they are no different from the people that I know in my real life. Ariel Lohan, her new novel, The Frozen River. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I have really enjoyed it. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Luke Burbank explained why he loves office holiday parties. Let's take a bunch of people who are very stressed out and people are mostly not saying what they want to say for 60 to 80 hours a week, and then let's apply a river of alcohol to the situation. <laughs> and Peter Sagal, we're having a holiday gathering this week at Carnegie Hall, and it is mandatory. So join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee on their annual list of world crises. Many are caused by climate. Fully two-thirds, 67% of conflicts are in climate-vulnerable countries. And later, inflation is down. Why not prices? The Boston Tea Party, 250 years later, some of America's founders thought not only lots of tea went overboard, sports for two great dynasties about to hit rock bottom, and Paul Lynch on his novel Prophet Song, which has just won the Booker Prize. A modern police state makes families wonder, fight or flee. First we have our newscast. It is Saturday, December 16, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. An Israeli military official today says the Israeli soldiers who shot dead three Israeli hostages in Gaza after mistaking them as a threat yesterday did not follow Israel's rules of engagement. A preliminary report finds the hostages cried out in Hebrew and had been waving a white flag. Israel says Hamas fighters often wear civilian clothing to deceive. Billions in U.S. aid for Ukraine and Israel are being held up by Republican demands that it be linked to U.S. border policy. Negotiations for a deal go on. Almost half of the near 30,000 bombs dropped by Israel in Gaza are a type that cannot be guided precisely to hit a target, according to new U.S. intelligence. NPR's Tom Bowman has more. Dumb bombs are unguided, meaning they can't hit a target precisely. Human rights groups say their use could explain the high number of Palestinian civilian deaths in Gaza. The death toll in Gaza is nearing 20,000, and most of those are women and children. A U.S. official, however, noted that Israeli pilots are flying low and slow before releasing the dumb bombs in order to carefully hit targets and lower civilian deaths. The official and others are uncertain why Israel is resorting to so many dumb bombs, noting they may be running out of precision bombs. Tom Bowman, NPR News. The ruler of Kuwait has died. He was 86 years old. The BBC's Mike Thompson has this report. Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmad al-Jabur al-Subah was always destined for positions of power. The son of the 10th ruler of Kuwait, he was appointed at the tender age of 26, governor of the Kuwait government of Hawali, a major commercial centre. In 2006, he was officially designated crown prince. Then in 2020, he was sworn in as emir of Kuwait. His rule was marked by deep and long-standing political disputes. But the emir was something of a peacemaker. 
The BBC's Mike Thompson. The Education Department is giving a snapshot of the data now that student loan borrowers have been required to resume repayment. NPR's Corey Turner has this report. The department says 22 million borrowers had payments due in October. That's about half of all federal student loan borrowers currently in the system. The other number they released is that 60% of those borrowers made that first payment by mid-November. Considering how troubled the return to repayment has been so far, some in the Biden administration see these numbers as good news. And the Ed Department says the 40% of borrowers who haven't yet made that first payment still have some breathing room. For the next year, the administration has paused the harshest consequences of delinquency and even default. Corey Turner, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are celebrating a big step forward for the replacement of the Bourne and Sagamore bridges on Cape Cod. The Bay State will get $372 million toward the effort from a federal grant. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren, along with Congressman Bill Keating, said in a joint statement that the funding is a critical down payment toward the replacement of the aging bridges. The state still has an outstanding application of more than a billion dollars for the same project. Funeral services are set for today for Roderick Jackson, the National Grid worker killed along with Waltham police officer Paul Tracy when they were struck by a car at a work site. His family says Roderick, who was known as Keto, was a generous man. His younger brother Manny Aspria Hassan says the family lost everything in the blink of an eye. I feel empty without him. I don't know what to do. I can't feel his shoes. I don't know where to begin. Officer Tracy's funeral was held yesterday. Today we are celebrating the 250th anniversary of the first act that led to the American Revolution. Colonial Bostonians had enough of taxation without representation and took action against the British government. They dumped British tea into Boston Harbor in an event that is now known as the Boston Tea Party. Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll says it brought independent colonies together. The Boston Tea Party is one of the most iconic moments in American history. Its actions and the British government's response to it, blocking our harbor, adopting the Intolerable Acts, and so much more, that's what served to the catalyst that led to the individual colonies coming together and uniting in support of each other. Today's reenactment gets underway at locations across the city starting at 4 o'clock this afternoon. The tea dumping starts at 8 o'clock tonight. Both the Bruins and the Celtics won last night. It'll be mostly sunny today. The highs in the upper 40s. Mostly cloudy tonight. Temperatures in the upper 30s. Right now it is 46 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The International Rescue Committee's annual watch list of global crises is out next week. It is a tough but essential read for anybody interested in, well, peace. The report tries to measure progress and regress in places that face humanitarian crises. It also looks at the correlation between calamities and armed conflicts. 
It highlights 20 countries that hold about a tenth of the world's population but carry about 86% of those people who face humanitarian crises. David Miliband is the president and CEO of the IRC. Of course, he's also the former British Foreign Secretary. He joins us now from New York. Mr. Miliband, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on. Where would you like us to look? I think that the most striking thing about this watch list this year is that some of the obvious places, Ukraine, Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, have dropped out of the top 10 of the watch list of humanitarian crises. In the top 10 is obviously the crisis in Gaza. You'd expect that all the headlines are devoted there. But number one is Sudan, a country in the northeast of Africa, 25 million people in humanitarian need. And number three is South Sudan, where some of the refugees, about 400,000 from Sudan, have gone. And our point is that eight of the top 10 crises, humanitarian crises in the world, are in Africa. And that while the concentration on Gaza is understandable, it shouldn't uh, mean that these other crises are neglected. Because what we do know is when humanitarian crisis is neglected, not only does the problem magnify, but it leads to political instability. What role has climate change played, do you think? Well, I use the phrase climate crisis, not climate change. Uh, the way in which the climate crisis contributes to humanitarian need is twofold. First of all, there are more disasters, and there are more disasters that are being concentrated in fragile states that are very weak in terms of the resilience that they offer. There's a very big overlap between the poorest countries and the concentration of climate crisis. The second aspect is that the climate crisis puts more pressure on resources, land resources most obviously, and pressure on resources is one of the drivers of conflict. And that's why we highlight in the report 14 of the 20 countries are not just conflict states, they're also in the top quartile of climate vulnerable states. And fully two thirds, 67% of conflicts are in climate vulnerable countries. Yeah. What kind of aid is genuinely helpful and what kind isn't? Well, responding after the event is a palliative, but it's too late. At the moment, the poorer the country, the more climate vulnerable, the less aid it gets for adaptation to climate change. And that makes no sense at all. We're saying not just that 50% of the resources of climate finance should go to adaptation, not just mitigation in poor countries. We're also saying that the most fragile countries, the unstable places, they need to get their fair share. And in those countries, we can't rely on traditional delivery mechanisms to get help to the poorest people. It's in the fragile states where the governments don't work, and you've got to have a different kind of pact between organizations like the World Bank, which provides most of the finance, and civil society, which has the ability to reach people. Well, in too many places, governments can't provide it, and they're either a combatant in, the, in an armed conflict, they're incapacitated in various ways, or they're not present. And that's why we're saying that instead of it being exceptional for the World Bank to work through civil society, it should become much more of the norm. Where are the people who are hardest to reach and who need help the most? Within conflict zones, it's very hard for government to reach. In, in the case of Sudan, the government backed by Egypt are in conflict with rebels backed by the United Arab Emirates. It takes non-governmental organizations that are neutral between parties to be able to reach. Second example, most of the clients of the International Rescue Committee are women and girls, and they face double and treble trouble not just the poverty and the displacement, but also the violence that they suffer. 
Yet, only 1% of total humanitarian funding goes to women-led organizations. That's something that the non-governmental sector can help put right. I have to ask, um, are you concerned that the world sometimes can't seem to focus on more than one crisis at a time? Yes, I am. I mean, obviously, we are following the crisis in Israel and Gaza very, very closely. We're trying to make a difference for civilians there, putting an equal value on the life of all civilians. Uh, that's a, a core part of our mission. But we can't uh, turn our eyes away from where else needs help as well. What can individual citizens do who feel their their, their hearts absolutely wrenched, but wonder if there's something they could do with their own individual lives uh, to begin with to inform themselves, but also to be a part of making things better? Yes, well, I, I want to address that because uh, there are two parts of my answer. First of all, the greatest renewable fuel of all is hope. And by reading about what we're doing, and they can renew their hope because they'll see our focus on solutions. There are solutions to these problems. But the second thing for an American audience, it's a great privilege for me as the CEO of the International Rescue Committee. I can say not just help us tackle problems far away. I can also say, go and help the refugees who are arriving in America. They need a buddy. They need support. They need the chance of applying for a job. The Biden administration has increased the number of refugees being allowed to come into the U.S. It's going to be around 60,000 this year. Those people know the price of oppression and they want to make the most of their chance to live in a free society. And they need some help. And there's no greater help alongside a resettlement organization like the International Rescue Committee than American citizens saying this is the way to make your way in America. David Miliband, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Good news about inflation this week. It is coming down. So much so, the Federal Reserve signaled it might begin cutting interest rates next year. The stock market cheered, but a lot of ordinary people aren't ready to celebrate. Here's Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, who says he understands that. People are still living with high prices, and that is something that people don't like. But anybody looking for a widespread drop in prices is likely to be disappointed. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Scott, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. So why haven't prices come down even though inflation has fallen? You know, inflation has fallen by about two-thirds from its peak last year, but that just means prices are going up more slowly than they had been. Uh, economists call this disinflation, and a lot of people are dissatisfied because they still feel like they're going uphill, even if the hill is not as steep as it was. They want to know, when do we get to the top and get to go downhill? Uh, Lisa Cook, who serves alongside Jerome Powell on the Fed Board of Governors, told an audience at Duke University last month she's heard this complaint from her own family members, and she knows the feeling. I'm looking around, and I'm like, so... Um when the price is going to get back to uh, where they were before, right? I mean, so most Americans are not just looking for disinflation. They're looking for deflation. They want these prices to be back where they were before the pandemic. But actual deflation, that is a widespread drop in prices, is probably not going to happen. And strange though it may sound, it's probably best that it doesn't. Please tell me why. 
ordinarily you only get deflation when something has gone really wrong with the economy. Uh, the last time we saw deflation in this country was in the early months of the pandemic, which you'll remember was not a happy experience. Yes, prices were falling, but only because people were stuck at home. They couldn't go out shopping or go out to eat. And that's not what anybody would describe as a healthy economy. What's more, falling prices aren't just a symptom of economic trouble. They can actually cause trouble. And I'll give you an example. Right now, gasoline prices have dropped sharply. Uh, so even though my car is just about on empty, I am waiting to fill up in hopes the price will drop below $3 a gallon here in Washington. That's a bit of a gamble for me. But if everybody started playing that game, it could be dangerous. You know, if people think prices across the board are going to drop, they'll probably put off spending. And if spending dries up, then the whole economy runs out of gas. Japan struggled for years to escape the deflation trap. This is actually why the Fed sets its inflation target at 2% and not zero. It's a little buffer to avoid the risk of deflation and keep prices inching up at a healthy rate, just not so much that people have to think about it. Scott, you mentioned gasoline, which can contribute to so many prices on so many different commodities. Some prices are falling, aren't they? Sure. I mean, in any given month, some prices do go down, others go up. Over the last 12 months, egg prices have tumbled 22%, cracking the run-up that began last year when avian flu hit. Electronics is an area where we often see falling prices. Uh, you can now buy a TV as big as your living room for about what I paid for a little black and white years ago. But even though some prices do come down from time to time, the overall cost of living tends to move in one direction, and that is up. What might it take for people to begin to feel a little less deflated? Well, the good news is even though prices probably aren't going back to pre-pandemic levels, wages aren't either. Uh, in fact, thanks to the strong job market, wages are now more than keeping pace with inflation. And over time, Powell says that rebound in buying power should help. Wages are now moving up more than inflation as inflation comes down. And so that might help improve the mood of people. Now, the psychology here is tricky. Many people think of pay raise as something they deserve for hard work, whereas nobody thinks they deserve higher prices. But a report from the Treasury Department this week did find that the median worker's paycheck today would buy everything it did back in 2019, before the pandemic, and have money left over. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to NPR News. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, how a fiery train derailment in Ohio pushed a demand for new rail safety measures in 2023. That's ahead on Weekend Edition here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com And the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, 
the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Amy Held with these headlines. Another border crossing into Gaza is expected to open, which could allow much-needed aid in for desperate Palestinians. According to the White House, there's no word on when. The Karam Shalom crossing would be the first direct entry of aid from Israel since the war against Hamas began in October. After years of pressure from privacy advocates, Google says it will stop saving location data from its Maps app in the cloud. Police often rely on the information as part of criminal investigations. Now Google says it will start saving the history on phones so it won't be accessible. And today, Boston celebrates the brewing American Revolution that led to independence with reenactments on the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. Amy Held, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Political candidates in Taiwan have debated for years whether to build more nuclear power plants. The issue has come to the fore in the weeks before next month's elections. NPR's Emily Fang reports that voters are concerned the island's energy security could be disrupted by a simple blockade from China. I meet Wu Wenzhang, an anti-nuclear activist, and we take a drive. He points out the profile of the Longmen nuclear power plant from the highway. In 2021, a referendum to restart construction on it was defeated, in part due to Wu's activism. As I take pictures, Wu gets into an argument with the security guards who try to shoo him away. This tense relationship between the abandoned nuclear plant facility and residents is a testament to how divisive the issue of nuclear energy is in Taiwan. There's lots of concerns about where to safely store nuclear waste on a tiny island. We feel if we don't protect our own homes and a nuclear plant is built nearby, and then there's ever a nuclear meltdown, we'll be doomed. Taiwan relies on coal imports to generate nearly half of its electricity. Less than a tenth comes from nuclear plants built in the 1980s. All in all, the island imports about 97 percent of its energy, including nuclear fuel. But that can last for up to two years if there is a potential Chinese blockade. So this is a security problem. Energy is a security issue. This is Huang Shixiu, a prominent pro-nuclear campaigner and political spokesperson. He says the need for nuclear power plants is greater these days as China's military becomes more advanced. China's army wouldn't have to do much for Taiwan to surrender. 
Even a typhoon in the Taiwan Strait that stopped our natural gas deliveries for over a week would mean losing half of our electricity supply. Environmental activists say the island should not have to sacrifice its environmental safety just because China next door threatens to invade. Attitudes towards nuclear energy are also split along political lines. The island's KMT party, which ruled the island as an authoritarian military state until the 1990s, built Taiwan's nuclear plants. Which makes the issue emotional. Nuclear is bound up with Taiwan's authoritarian past. Wu strongly associates nuclear energy with the period of KMT rule and martial law he was born under. The KMT controlled all the nuclear plants. They started confiscating land to build plants in the 1970s. But because Taiwan had not democratized, we did not dare protest against those plants. Now they can, and protest Wu did. But despite Taiwan's democratization in the 1990s, he says he still cannot trust the once-ruling KMT party and its promises on nuclear. We have long been tricked by the KMT, just as they tricked us on the promise of nuclear. Instead, like many in the environmental lobby, he argues Taiwan should go all in on renewable energy. Indeed, Taiwan is developing big offshore wind projects, but they're expensive and years behind schedule. And so the island remains dependent on energy imports that could be vulnerable to a potential Chinese blockade. In the shadow of the vacant Mengmen power plant, Wu, now retired, gardens and raises animals. This is land my father left to me, and his father left to him. It's this connection to this land that drove Wu in his activism, land his family's head from before the KMT took control over Taiwan and before Beijing laid claim over the island. And it's also why the clash between conflicting priorities will continue, between those who want to make Taiwan safe for its residents and those who want to make it safe against China. Emily Fang, NPR News, Fulong Beach, Taiwan. And a cold... December night, 250 years ago, a group of men destroyed a lot of tea. The Boston Tea Party helped fuel the American Revolution, but historians say what many of us were taught about that day is not entirely accurate. Gabriela Emanuel of member station WBUR looks anew at one of the most storied events in U.S. history. For starters, the Boston Tea Party had very little to do with tax hikes. It was almost all about monopoly power and lack of representation. The British Parliament had just given the British East India Company a monopoly on selling tea in America as a bailout to the teetering company. This would have actually made tea cheaper, but colonists up and down the East Coast were furious they didn't have a say. The tea is really a symbol of who governs us. That's historian Robert Allison of Suffolk University. Do we really govern ourselves or are we now governed by a force we can't control? In Boston, colonists converged on what was then the biggest building on the busiest street, the Old South Meeting House. It's red brick with a steeple. Nat Shidley oversees the historic building. The eyewitness account said there were 5,000 people in this space, and that's 5,000 people in a town of 15,000, right? So a third of the town crammed in here like sardines. People hung off the balconies and spilled out into the streets, 
discussing what to do with the tea. As night fell on the 20th day of debate, the crowd got word the pro-British governor was insisting the ships of tea be unloaded. Revolutionary leader Samuel Adams stood up and said, this meeting can do nothing more to save the country. That was apparently the signal for more than 100 men to head to the nearby wharf. This was the moment where there was no backing down. If you are here to cast off that yoke of parliamentary tyranny, say aye. Christine Strong is a reenactor for the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum in Boston Harbor. That night, many men wore blankets and put soot on their faces to hide their identity. Despite later images and paintings, there were no Native American headdresses. But historians say some of the men were loosely disguised as indigenous people. And we are all aware we are committing treason, aye? And we all know the punishment for treason is death, indeed, death by hanging. And that's a fate I should hope we all avoid. Here's the part of the story you likely know. The Patriots hauled chests of tea out of the cargo holds of three ships, broke them open with axes, and chucked the tea and crates overboard into the chilly Boston Harbor at low tide. One of the ships had a pacifist Quaker captain from Cape Cod who even let his crew participate in the protest if they wanted. Thousands of pounds of tea washed ashore. Today, that'd be worth more than one and a half million dollars. Despite the Boston Tea Party's name, this was no drunken party, nor was it a violent affair. Historian Allison says it was disciplined, methodical, carefully planned. A crowd does come and watch this happening on the docks, and people comment on how orderly they are, how quiet they are. The focus was on making a political statement. None of the other cargo was disturbed. Allison says the colonists even swept the ships clean and tended to a broken padlock. They send someone into town to get a new one to replace it. And I have to confess, Bostonians did tend toward a lot of street violence in the 1760s and 1770s, which makes this so much more remarkable. But not everyone was impressed. George Washington and Benjamin Franklin think they really went too far. You know, Washington is kind of aghast at this destruction of property. The British were also aghast and reacted strongly. They shut down the port of Boston, crippling the local economy. The British suspended town meetings and local elections. What Massachusetts does is actually calls for a meeting of the other colonies, which is a huge risk. It could be the other colonies will say, you wacky Puritans really went too far this time. But they didn't. The colonies were shocked by the British reaction, and they rallied in support, setting themselves on a path that led to the Revolutionary War less than two years later, and soon to the creation of a new nation. For NPR News, I'm Gabriella Emanuel in Boston. Get up out your chair for the HBCU Marching Band of the Year competition. It pits the roar of Florida Memorial University against Virginia State University's Trojan Explosion. And the Blue and Gold Marching Machine of North Carolina A&T against Jackson State University's Sonic Boom of the South. What makes a marching band a truly great marching band? Tune in. Find out on your phone, your smart speaker, or your radio. I'm all shouted out after that promo, but it's time for sports. 
The Golden State Warriors. Oh, are they bad? The New England Patriots, even worse. Is it curtain time for the 21st century's most dominant dynasties? Oh, I'm still speaking like the British. Howard Bryant of Better Luck Media joins us. How are you, Howard? Good morning, Scott. How are you? Fine, thanks. Let's start with uh, the Warriors' Draymond Green. Uh, NBR, uh, NBR. <laughs> well, they do that too. The, <laughs> he the, got traded. He got traded. He got he got traded. Right, boy. What won't be a good use of him. Uh, the NBA suspended him a uh, second time this season, this time indefinitely for striking an opposing player during a game. He did that before this season, also last. I was struck, forgive the expression, by what Steve Kerr, the coach, said. This is about more than basketball. It's about helping Draymond. It's an opportunity for Draymond to step away and make a change in his approach in his life. What, if I might put it this way, strikes you, Howard? Well, I think what struck me about this is how quickly uh, a, a guy who had a reputation as sort of uh, an edgy enforcer is is now essentially being treated for mental health. That That's the entire story now is talking about, you listen to the players, the, his former teammate Kevin Durant, you listen to his coach talking about getting him the help that he needs. Here's a, here's a player who last year punched his teammate, Jordan Poole, yeah. b- before the season started, and his team never recovered from it. Uh, he's had two physical altercations already this season. He hasn't really spoken publicly yet on this. It will be very interesting to see what the NBA thinks in terms of of what an indefinite suspension means. Roughly, it'll be about 10 games, I think. But indefinite could be longer than that, or maybe a little bit less. But but what's happening right now is that here's a player who is integral to a, a, a dynasty of four championships clearly being talked about on a on a hall of fame track and now it appears that there's a fair amount of his career that is in jeopardy even though he signed a four-year hundred million dollar contract yeah golden states were a lot of the playoff race um they're just not a, an average team now well, I think what it is is that we always wonder what it's going to look like when you see these great teams and you can, when you remember Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and that team just running through the league, remember they won 73 games one year and now they are mortal. This is what age looks like. This is what time looks like. And, and you start to see the rest of the league has caught up to them. They're not as good. And there's a lot of basketball left. You can still make the yeah. playoffs. But you look at them, making the playoffs was not the Golden State Warriors. Winning the championship for them has been what this run has been all about. Six NBA finals, four championships, and now they're, they're just another team for now. But we'll see what they do for the rest of the year. But generally speaking, this is what the end sort of looks like. But I'll tell you something else, Scott. If you are a basketball fan in, in Oakland and San Francisco in the Bay Area, you remember the old days. This team gave you a hell of a lot more than you ever expected. So this is the end sometimes. Tom Brady looks like he got out of the Patriots just in time. They're 3-10. and 10. Uh, Bill Belichick, obviously widely regarded as one of the great head coaches of all time, but not many 3-10 and 10 coaches get invited back, do they? No, they don't. And even even him, considering maybe the greatest coach of all time, 19 straight winning seasons with the Patriots, nine Super Bowls, six Super Bowl championships. Yeah. And once again, this is what time and this is what age looks like for them. It's, it's unlikely he'll be back this year, which is sort of remarkable as well. 
But I think what when you look at the Patriots, the one of the biggest problems with them is Bill Belichick. He is also the GM. He's responsible for right. for replenishing the talent. And after Tom Brady, that hasn't really happened. And it looks like a very sad end to a dynasty. But once more, look at no New Englander will ever complain about football again after what they gave this region. Yeah, for so many years. Uh, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, happy holidays. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A fiery train crash sparked a push for rail safety this year, but as Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, the Railway Safety Act of 2023 may have run off the tracks. Remember back in February when TV news was dominated by a huge flaming train wreck in a tiny town. Breaking news tonight, an emergency situation unfolding right now in East Palestine, Ohio, after a train derailed. It felt like a post-apocalyptic. It felt like I was the only way I could think about it is like running away from a tornado. Hillary Flint, who lives four miles from the crash site, was driving away from the towering cloud of boiling black smoke. It reminded me of the photos I've seen of the atomic bomb. An overheated wheel bearing failed, tipping 38 rail cars off the tracks, including 11 carrying toxic chemicals. Nobody was hurt at first, but the chemical fallout from the fire lingered, and people like Flint say they suffered sore throats, rashes, and headaches for months. I think it what happened here really woke people up. And it drew lots of attention, including a visit from former President Donald Trump. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, uh, we have told you loud and clear you are not forgotten. The wreck sparked bipartisan legislation. The Railway Safety Act of 2023 would force railroads to deploy more sensors to detect failing wheel bearings, to alert local officials to hazardous trains, and set the size of train crews. It was co-sponsored by conservative Republicans and Democrats like Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. This is an attempt, this railroad bill, railway safety bill, is an attempt to blunt some of that overreach and some of that greed that corporate executives at the railroads have foisted upon the American public. In recent years, railroads have cut about a third of their employees, stretched the length of trains, and banked record profits. Brown says staffing is thin, safety has suffered, and that the Railway Safety Act aims to turn that around. The railroads want only one engineer. Our law says there have to be at least two people working on these trains at all times. That mandatory two-person crew size is a major sticking point. Ian Jeffries, president of the Association of American Railroads, says that train crews have already dropped from five down to two as technology keeps advancing. At the same time, we've seen dramatic safety improvements across every aspect of the industry. Jeffrey says derailments are down about 30 percent in the last two decades. Hazardous chemical spills are off more than 70 percent, he says. Last year was one of the best years in the entire history of this industry, if not the best. Railroads hate wrecks. After all, accidents kill valuable employees. They destroy gear, scramble schedules, and spark lawsuits. They cost lots of money. And since East Palestine, Jeffrey says railroads have reached out to millions of local first responders, letting them know when trains are toting hazardous stuff, what it is, and what to do if it leaks out. So one major goal of the Railway Safety Act is already taking hold. But the act itself has been stuck in the Senate for months. For all intents and purposes, it's dead. 
Bill Vontawana, editor-in-chief at Railway Age, says the Railway Safety Act would lock in outdated safety technology. He says it's good politics, but bad legislation coming before the government's East Palestine crash investigation is even completed. It wasn't needed in the first place. It was a, a huge waste of time. Nothing but a political stunt. And if it is, in fact, dead, which I think it is, you know, good riddance. Well, not so fast. Senator Brown admits the legislation faces a Republican filibuster and that Congress faces lots of other problems right now. But Brown says he still hopes to get a full Senate vote on the Railway Safety Act of 2023 by the end of the year. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The remains of a Pittsfield airman killed in a helicopter crash near Japan are back home. Air Force Staff Sergeant Jake Gallagher's family and state officials met his casket at an air reserve base in Chicopee yesterday. His wake and funeral will be next week. Federal lawmakers are pushing for a posthumous congressional gold medal for an athlete with local ties. Marshall W. Major Taylor grew up in Indiana but moved to Worcester in 1895. He won bicycle races throughout the world and is often seen as the first black sports star. Two Boston youth teams are celebrating their national titles today. The Dorchester Eagles won the Pop Warner National Championship for the first time in the program's history. And the Boston Lady Raiders cheer squad also took home a first-place Nationals trophy. It's 47 degrees in Boston at 940. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com, and the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. And New England Conservatory Prep School, open to students under 18. Enroll in spring music classes and ensembles today at necmusic.edu slash prep. Poland has hosted what some call the Piano Olympics for nearly a century. A new documentary follows the intense musical journeys of the young musicians who compete in it. I'm not trying to make a film about the winner. I know much more about not winning than winning. Director Jakub Piotek on his film, Piano Forte. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Hairdressers, barbers estheticians, all can be privy to some of their clients' deepest secrets. And when it comes to domestic violence, they might be helpful. There is a bill aimed at providing them with training to recognize signs of abuse in their clients. Natasha Sinyanovich reports. Domestic violence hinges on controlling someone, on isolating them from support systems. And hair salons are among the few places many victims can visit alone the people who are cutting your hair are going to notice the bruises on your neck, are going to notice that you're tender around areas where perhaps you've been struck. 
That's Illinois Democrat Tammy Duckworth. She's co-sponsoring a new bipartisan Senate bill by Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn. It's based on laws that already exist in their states and one other. In Tennessee, for example, all beauty industry professionals must take free domestic abuse awareness training as part of their recertification process. Hairstylist Suzanne Post was crucial in getting that law passed to help abuse survivors. We may be the person that is in the position to gently nudge them when it's time. Time to find an exit strategy. Post created the online training used in her state. It teaches to lend a compassionate ear, but not push anyone to just leave. That, she says, could be fatal. It has to be the right time, and you can't force that for someone else. Instead, says Post, sprinkle your shop with flyers about victim services. At most, discreetly hand a client a hotline number. Post also consulted on the Senate bill. It would give a grant to states that make the training mandatory. And it also includes barbers. Statistically, at least one in six domestic violence victims in the U.S. are men, who often find it hard to open up about abuse, says barber in training Tamaya Harding. I have been in situations where I had my male clients have scratches on their face and their neck and maybe their eye is black. And I ask those questions like, well, what happened? How did you get this? And they began to tell me their story. Harding is in Michigan, and her barber school includes this training as part of the curriculum. She says the biggest eye-opener for her was that domestic violence conversations don't have to come after serious injury or death, that prevention is possible. We only talk about it when something tragic happens. We never talk about it in a way to stop it from happening. It's unclear whether the new bill will get any traction in Congress. Meanwhile, Suzanne Post's free online training is growing. She says more than 100,000 beauty industry professionals have taken it worldwide. For NPR News, I'm Natasha Sinyanovich. Paul Lynch's novel, Prophet Song, has just won the 2023 Booker Prize a few weeks ago. It's set in modern Dublin, and there is an unnamed pandemic, an unspecified national emergency, when one night Eilish, a biologist for a biotech company and mother of four, answers a knock at the door. Two police officers are looking for her husband, Larry, a leader in the teachers' union. They say it's nothing to worry about. But soon Eilish finds herself in a world in which loved ones go missing. Co-workers are led away. People turn on water taps to avoid being overheard. And church bells ring out. But there seems to be no mercy. Paul Lynch joins us from Dublin. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, certainly congratulations on winning the Booker. Thank you, Scott. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Did you set out to write a story set in Syria? It's funny, my editor, Juliet, maybe at One World has given out to me for having, she says, you, you've produced at least three origin stories for this book. And I've laughed because the truth is, is you, you just don't know. Like there, there's so many things that nucleate around sort of core ideas in your subconscious. But the modern world was leaking in. And, you know, the, the book is set in Dublin, though. It's it's a dream of a modern Ireland. It's It's a sort of, maybe it's a counterfactual Ireland. Perhaps it's set in the future. I don't specify that. And there's a reason why I don't specify. There's a, there's, I'm allowing a space for the reader to sort of occupy where I'm not identifying the background politics. That's completely besides the point. I'm paying attention to the sort of the beating heart of the moment, the, the sort of personal cost of events. I'm watching Eilish, I'm seeing how she responds to something 
that I don't think has been properly articulated before in fiction, um, or at least not in a way that I'm interested in. I think of, of, of a great work like The Iliad and where that foregrounds the politics, it foregrounds the heroics. And I wondered if, what if you turn that inside out? You'd be left with people like Ailish Stack in Prophet Song, the stories that aren't told, that only the novelist can truly reach and take hold of. And that's, that's what I wanted to do in this book when I'm following the exploits of a family trying to stay together, uh, a mother who's trying to navigate a labyrinth, because that's what effectively this is. I found myself, and not just because of the similarity in names, I found myself fascinated by Simon, Alicia's father. Suffers from memory loss, but clear out about the future? Yeah, Simon is interesting because what he's losing, because uh, he's sliding into dementia, is also a memory of the past that we might all know now, you know? Life in a liberal democracy that's that's beginning to unravel. And Simon has these moments where he's sliding out of reality and then there are these extraordinarily lucid insights where he tells Eilish, you need to leave. And this is one of the big questions of the book is how do you know when to leave? And the problem that Eilish encounters is, well, leaving is the hardest thing in the world when you are completely entangled in life. And this is what the book's exploring, how truly enmeshed we are. And I suppose I learned in writing this book that what we are, are our entanglements, our identities are our career, our children, our relatives, the place in which we grow up, and that to, to be forced to leave those things, they have to be unplugged one by one by one by one until you've got nothing left. And then, then you will be shunted out. You have written that you worry, you wonder about if novels can be important anymore, if they can capture our attention the way so many other media, I hate to use the word platform, but there you go, um, yeah. can be. What, what do you feel about the power of a novel now? I think that we all know, all of us, that our attention has been atomized by the times that we live in, by the sort of the tyranny of the now, the sense of bombardment of of social media, of our bleeping phones. And then, of course, there's just the spectacle of modern life. There's the television. We watch the news. And I think we become completely inured to it. And we have to be inured to it because otherwise we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the morning. And yet what we're watching has great import and it's very difficult to connect with what we're seeing. And so I, do, I wondered about that. I wondered about how can fiction work its way around our defenses so that not sympathy but empathy becomes possible. And I say this with a caveat that I'm not interested as a novelist in bringing a message to the world. I'm not interested in being a writer who has a political message because I just think that would be so limited. I think true complexity requires us a myriad number of lenses. I say all that and at the same time, I think this book carries moral weight. It arrives at a place of moral weight. And I do seek to bypass these self-defenses. And, and, and the, the novel used to have this whisper in the ear. It, it, was, it was at the centre of the culture and it didn't have to fight so hard to be heard. This is just my own small way. I'm just a guy in Dublin. I'm just a guy working in, in, in his house in Dublin. Well, but a guy who's just won the booker, which immediately makes you, I don't have to tell you, one of the most significant novelists in the world, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It's, I'm finding myself sort of plucked and placed onto the world stage. Um, you're probably approaching the 60th interview since I've won this prize and I'm I'm burning out 
Scott, there's so little left to me at this point, and it's only the start of it from from what I gather. Um, and it's an interesting thing for you to have to happen. Um, I you know in Irish literature, it's a tremendous thing. I'm the sixth Irish writer to win this prize, and so there there comes with it a role, I suppose, within the culture here, and that's a role I'm willing to meet because it's an honour to win such an extraordinary prize. How many of us who among the 60 who've interviewed you have asked, what do we do now? Nobody. What do we do now? <laughs> Can I well, recommend silence? We just sit in silence. I think silence is the solution to the to the moment we're in. I'm trying to grab as many moments as, of silence as I can at the moment. Um, I'm a meditator. I think the solution to the problem is to actually go inside and to get that, not the whisper in the ear, but the whisper of your own oracle and it's such a challenge to hear it and it gets drowned out by the modern world go for a hike sit down in a chair and turn your phone off read a book listen to your thoughts that's what we need to do paul lynch his new novel winner of this year's booker prize prophet song thank you so much for being with us my pleasure scott thank you so the shortest day came and the year died and everywhere down the centuries of the snow-white world came people singing, dancing, to drive the dark away. Thursday, December 21, is the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. They lighted candles in the winter trees. They hung their homes with evergreen. They burned beseeching fires all night long to keep the year alive. For more than 40 years, people have been reading and performing Susan Cooper's poem, The Shortest Day, to celebrate the winter solstice. And when the New Year's sunshine blazed awake, they shouted, reveling. Down all the frosty ages, you can hear them echoing behind us. Listen. In 2019, we spoke to Susan Cooper about the children's book she created from the poem. It's a family celebration of the light coming back after the dark threatens to take over the world. We've been asking authors and illustrators how they work together or work separately to translate words into pictures. For the shortest day, Susan Cooper collaborated with Carson Ellis, the illustrator, by mail. I said in a letter to Carson that there is no story in this poem. We have to put the story in the pictures. So it's up to you, kid. <laughs> and she certainly did. <laughs> it was one long, beautiful, very forthright, kind of daunting letter that Susan wrote to me, kind of telling me what she wanted the book to be able to do. And it completely changed the direction I was going in. And it was really daunting. I read the letter and thought, oh, gosh, this is a much harder book. <laughs> oh, um, my initial response was that I wanted it to look sort of like a Bruegel painting. If you know who Bruegel is, he's like a 16th century painter. He painted this really famous painting called Hunters in the Snow, I think. A lot of people would recognize it. And he painted a lot of medieval scenes and a lot of great winter scenes. So I had this idea that I could kind of set the poem against the backdrop of medieval life and sort of chuck it full of medieval details so there would be a lot to glean about a life in medieval Northern Europe from the book. That was kind of my initial response to it. But I started to mock this book up in this way that had these kind of merry villagers reveling on their way to a solstice celebration. And I sent it to Susan to ask her some questions. I had questions about the chronology of the poem, and I had questions about the history of the solstice. So we had this exchange, and when she saw these 
kind of cheerful, lighthearted illustrations, she kind of corrected me and said, that's not really what this book is about. It's, it's a book about deeper and more serious stuff, to paraphrase her. <laughs> Just basically this sense that um, long ago, those shortening days, along with them came a lot of dread associated with the cold and starvation and um, actually, I feel like Susan should be talking about what this book is about. So I'm going to stop here. <laughs> the pictures show you not just the shortest day. They show you the way the light gradually gets less and less as the year diminishes towards the end. Carson does this beautifully by having three or four pictures before the poem even starts, showing you the sun weakening as the year goes on and the dread that this used to bring in the minds of primitive peoples until the sun comes up again after the shortest day, which is the beginning of hope. And the pictures manage to take you through time so that you are seeing those peasants from the Bruegel painting, but you are also seeing the same feelings echoed uh, right up to the present day. Um, and I would add also that um, that idea of starting with those words, wordless spreads, was actually Susan's idea when we were initially talking about how to do the book. I think she said something like, you know, it's a it's a pretty short poem and we have 32 pages. Do we have to initially jump right into the text? And it was such an obvious and brilliant way to start the book. I was sort of embarrassed that I hadn't thought of it myself as the illustrator. It was, it's a great idea. I didn't think of it myself either. I stole it from my daughter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both indebted. Um, I, another thing I love about this book is that as a kid, I grew up in a really secular Jewish household. We celebrated Christmas and Hanukkah, but the the general joy of the holidays associated with the birth of Christ was sort of lost on me. So this book helped me understand a little bit the joy of those winter holidays. It's more universal and it really is just kind of light triumphing over darkness and, and light is always a cause to celebrate. And I have an echo from my childhood, I think, because I was a kid during World War II in England and the long dark nights were the nights that brought the Nazi bombers over. Uh, when we would be sitting in our air raid shelter underneath the back lawn with mum reading books to us by the light of a candle. And when the bombs came closer, the candle would shake. And it's the obviously subconscious echo of that, I think, has gone all through my writing life. Uh, and in this poem, particularly in this book, the line at the end of the book uh, that people carol, feast, give thanks and dearly love their friends and hope for peace. Don't we all? Susan Cooper and Carson Ellis, the Newberry and Caldecott Award-winning author and illustrator, talking about their book, The Shortest Day. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, 
Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Steve Brown. 48 degrees in Boston at a minute and a half before 10 o'clock. Wait, wait, don't tell me. He's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving to create more of the stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or even your old car. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.